Hey, everybody, it's Sarah. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. Don't forget to check out our other great ESPN pods like the Woj Pod. How does 25-year-old two-time MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo get drafted 15th overall in a weak draft class? Adrian Wojnarowski investigates the twists and turns that led to a franchise and league-altering selection in 2013, a three-part series that tells this unique story, including interviews with individuals close to the process, as well as a one-on-one sit-down with Giannis himself. Check out the Woj Pod special, The Giannis Draft, wherever you find your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, I'm Malika Andrews, and my dilemma is that I have been putting off changing to a real ID forever. You guys, the commish is slipping. I mean, you can tell I've only flown once since the pandemic hit. I'm way out of the loop. Um, But this real ID stuff has been around for a while, I guess. According to this DHS.gov site, almost 110 million real ID compliant driver's license and ID cards have been issued, which either means that states just started doing it automatically or 110 million people know about something that I've never even heard of. What? I mean, what good is being on the internet all day and claiming to be the all-knowing commish when, you know, your Aunt Judy in Dubuque is scooping me on this shit? Guys, I'm, I'm shaken. I'm shook even. I need a minute to collect myself. So, uh, you know, talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. Dr. Pepper is neither a doctor nor a pepper. Discuss. The commish has spoken. ESPN NBA reporter Malika Andrews is my guest this week, a rising star at the company who just wrapped up her time in the NBA bubble not too long ago and is about to cover her first NBA draft. We had a lot to get to, and we didn't get to most of it. Uh, We didn't get to a Spanish Inquisition and so much other good stuff, so she's going to have to come back again sometime soon uh, so she can do that and we can get to so much more. But we did spend a lot of time on her remarkable and fascinating childhood and the highs and lows that ended her up um, at a college newspaper where she finally found her calling as a sports writer and uh, found somewhere to put her energies. Uh, also a scary situation when she first got to Chicago, some uh, superlatives from being inside the bubble and what it's like when an NBA superstar walks out on an interview with you. Uh, this was a really honest and really interesting conversation, and I know you're going to be hearing from Malika a lot more in the years to come. She's destined for great things, so hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. I am super excited to have superstar, rising star. Everyone's talking about her. The 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 news is going international about <laughs> the the new future. I believe I've heard Oprah. I've heard President. <laughs> um, probably most of Jeopardy that. too. I know that that job's open right now. But uh, Malik Andrews is with me um, right now. She's an NBA reporter for ESPN. But as mentioned, her future is. Uh, is limitless, potentialless, uh, boundless, uh, because she's been impressing so much in her recent efforts, including uh, being one of the great bubble reporters for ESPN and uh, soon to be a draft reporter for the NBA draft. Uh, let's go way back. And mm. there was a story written about you in the New York Post that sort of uh, outlined a ton of, of your growing up. But I want to get into some of it because it's pretty fascinating. 
You grew up in the Oakland area. And would you say your family was sportsy, watching sports a lot, talking about sports a lot? Yeah. I mean, so so my dad, Mike, is was a, a personal trainer and now he has mostly retired, even though sometimes he's just he can't help himself. He can't help not be involved in some project. And by Just project, I mean, someone who's like, yeah, you, you. yes, exactly. <laughs> and you think I'm kidding, but sometimes it was like, Oh yeah, you guys want dessert tonight. That's great. Get, get down there. You better no do those. Push-ups. Um, but yeah, so, so my dad was a, a personal trainer. And so he trained at gyms in San Francisco where it just so happened that oftentimes teams a lot of basketball teams would come through before their games against the Golden State Warriors back when the Warriors were located in Oakland. And so going to Warriors games, I mean, this was back in the day when tickets were a fraction of what they are now, but going to Warriors games was part of what I did growing up. And it was part of the language that I used to communicate with my dad. I think that sports maybe over anything else was kind of that was an interest that we had in common. And for my actual playing of sports, that didn't take mostly that did not take the form of basketball. I was a skier, horseback rider, volleyball player, but he was always there. He didn't really know anything about horseback riding when I started, but it was something that we bonded over because to him, it didn't matter. He was an outdoors sport kind of guy. He was a bicyclist. He was a rock climber. He was a skier. He was an outdoorsman. And so that's kind of, I think that was, at least from my recollection, what we bonded over when I was younger. Yeah. Um, So in the story, it talks about right around preteen, right around 11, um, you started to struggle with anxiety and depression. Is there a moment or a thing that you remember that changed and after that you struggled or was it just all of a sudden um, those emotions were hard to deal with? Honestly, it was a combination of things. And even though I I talked about it in the New York Post article, it's it's still hard for me to talk about a little yeah. bit. I think that, yeah, there, there were some specific factors that I think made things hard for me. But then I also think that for some reason, I started to kind of have this a need maybe to be seen or to be heard that I didn't feel that I was getting and it didn't make total sense because I grew up in a family where we had dinner together every night, like without fail. My dad, my mom, they showed up for my school activities, but for some reason in that point in time, I just felt like that What for whatever reason, it wasn't enough. There was something that was missing and I, I couldn't figure it out and I got really angry and I couldn't figure out necessarily people would keep asking me, well, why, what happened, what haven't you told us? And I didn't have a good answer to that question and I took it out on, on my mother, on my father, my mother especially, and I remember we were on a, a family vacation celebrating my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, and there was a, a dinner party that night for the anniversary. And I remember getting into just a screaming match with my mother, and I, we were in a foreign country, 
you know, and I, she, she was just so horrified that I was just so upset and couldn't seem to, I, I couldn't calm down. I just, it, it kept going and going and going and I would get angry and angrier and telling more and more, um, keep keeping more and more things from her and scaring her, I think. And so when I was 14, I, I actually came to her after I got into it with somebody at school and I said, I don't, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I think I need some help. And I don't think at that point when I said that, I knew that that was going to take me on a four-year journey where I was going to get taken out of school and not get to have a, I never went to normal high school. All of that is something that I don't think that I was calculating in that yeah, moment. Right. But I just knew that I, I didn't think that I could keep going the way that I was going because it just, it, it, it hurt too much. And I didn't know why, but I was also embarrassed, I think a little bit to ask for help because I wanted to be able to point to something and say, this is it. This is what happened. This is what's wrong. And this is what needs to be fixed. Mm. And I, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Well, you know, you're clearly brilliant. Um, <laughs> so ahead of your time, that it's fascinating to imagine you flunking out of middle school or not being, not applying yourself. Is there any part of you that thinks that there was perfectionism at play? Oh, for sure. <laughs> the I mean, that's not even, in hindsight, that's not even, that's not even a question. Um, I think there, it was, it's funny, or actually maybe it's not funny at all, but I do think the, in, in some ways, the, the forms of perfectionism that I channel into work or other things now is this, it's a different side of the same coin of right. the, you know, the, the negative side maybe of what was going on for me, which was I needed to be the best. And at that point, what I could be the best at was, I don't want to say be the best at being the worst, but be the best at being, you know, I, I went to a school that was, I was one of, up until sixth grade, I was one of two black kids in my class. It was a private school. It was white. It was preppy. And it was all my dad wanted for me because that's not what he got. He wanted me to go to a school where I was going to get an incredible education that had language and music. And, and I got that. And then at some point I was, maybe I was average there. And the thing I could stand out of at was Acting out. Yeah. Correct. And so maybe I leaned into that a little bit. Um, maybe I wanted to project uh, an image of a, a perfect image and I didn't have one. And so I got so angry at myself maybe for not getting there. But um, yeah, I have a, I have a stack of journals from, from back then. I was really good about journaling every day Um and I have them in a box and I just, I haven't gone back through them. So someday, you know, I will. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, you know, it, it, it was, it's maybe easy to say that everything was going well and I just had an episode of 
being a little angry or upset, but it's hard to convey, I think, in talking about it now, maybe partly because I'm I'm not ready to dive in with, with two feet yet and it, that just how hard it was because it wasn't cute. It wasn't a temper tantrum. I was devastating my parents and I was hurting myself. And that was, that was never a part of the life that my family had set up for me. And so there's, I think maybe even a part of me now that feels like I'm still working on making it up to them. Yeah. Well, and that comes back to perfectionism again and also control and, Mm -hmm. You know, some of your issues were were an eating disorder that was you you said was sort of hard to describe, and that is so much about control, right? How oh, can I how can I prove to myself or to others that I'm the one in charge by limiting what I'm allowed to have or the behaviors and when I have them? Um, it's interesting. I don't want to turn this into a therapy session. I'm always I'm always fascinated no, you're good. by this stuff, though. Um, especially because one of the things that I found most interesting about doing this podcast is the different ways that people arrive at success. Mm-hmm. And because, for whatever reason, I did the thing that like you think you're supposed to do, like oh, I'm going to do every activity. I'm going to get the best grades. I'm going to do everything I can, and then I'm going to do whatever the best thing is, and then hopefully I'll be successful. That I sometimes will have people on the show, and they'll be like, "Well, I didn't really like school, so I didn't do it." And I didn't really like college, so I never went. And now I'm on Saturday Night Live. And I'm like, you. <laughs> You're like, I worked my I whole life for this. I planned it all out when yeah. I was in the womb. I had a list. Exactly. Screw I was doing as not. just yeah. in fifth grade. And how the did you get there? But it's it's sort of the fascinating thing to me is um, how people manifest their own talents and abilities and what allows them to, you know, I think part of the reason you're sort of preternaturally genuine and honest and aware is because you went through this at a young age, like you're 25 and so far ahead of people in terms of the way you talk about things. I think part of that is that you've lived at 25. (laughs) I remember being in acting classes in my early twenties and how are these people like like getting to all these emotions? And I've never had any of these emotions in life yet. So I can't (laughs) do them for fake. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So you go to this therapeutic boarding school in Utah. It's year round. Does that mean you Mm -hmm. don't have even like summer break? You're just there and then you only see your parents if they visit? Yeah. So I I went to a couple of boarding schools and actually I think that maybe something that enabled me a little bit in hindsight before I went to a a couple of different places. Um, The last two in Utah, uh, partly because in Utah, unlike in California, in California where I grew up at the time, I'm not not actually sure what the law is now, but at the time when you were 16, you could have signed yourself out. And in Utah, that age is 18 there just so happens to be a ton of therapeutic boarding schools in Utah um, and in the Northeast. Those are kind of two places that just have become kind of hotbeds because of the laws of what age people can sign themselves out. So anyways, I, I, before I went to the boarding school, I went to a hospital to get evaluated. Um, I ended up being there for a month. And then I went to a eating disorder specialty um, program. And I was actually only there for three weeks because they decided that my 
eating control issues didn't fit into a box. They said, you know what, you need some, we, you, you need something that we can't offer. And so that's kind of when I made the journey to Utah and then to boarding school. And my first boarding school was an all girls school. And yes, basically it was a year round school. You had therapy on Mondays and family therapy on Thursdays. And we were assigned horses, which was something that was important to my parents when they were looking was to have, you know, there was equine therapy, which has become very uh, trendy. And, and, but yeah, it was year round boarding school. They had actually converted the garage of the house that I lived into in, into a schoolhouse. And so every day I would take my binder to, to school and there would be a teacher there. And I at 14 was in the same room as a girl who was 12 and a girl who was 17 and we all had our independent study and the teacher that was there, it would be English class. But while I might have a lit class, someone else might have a spelling class depending on if they're in eighth grade or in 12th grade. Right. And the teacher, you'd raise your hand and they'd come around and they would check your work. That was my first boarding school. My second boarding school was slightly, and that second boarding school was co-ed and it was considered more of a transitional boarding school, a little bit. Um, you could, I wouldn't say it was less strict, but you could earn more privileges over the time that you were there than you could at the first boarding school. So both were year round. I've managed to, I've never missed a Thanksgiving. So I got granted going back to California for three days for Thanksgiving, but it was all very heavily supervised with sort of daily check-ins and that sort of thing. But I would go home. I mean, I was 14 and I 15, 16, I went home once a year for those, you know, and from when I left to when I went home at 14, that was, I left home on March 17th and I didn't go back until November. And so at that age, you know, yeah. like that was That'll kind of, you yeah, that, like, that's like, you know, and then yeah. it was sort of, you know, it was a, you weren't, we had, we had staff members or people looking after you, but there were things I was assigned to be the cook for the entire yeah. house that I lived in once a week. Right. So I had to yeah. plan out a menu. They would give you a budget. They'd send you grocery shopping with a staff member. Um, you had a chore that you had to complete every day. So not that those aren't things that happen at home, but it was in a different environment. So yeah. And then the next boarding school was the same. It was the same thing. It was, I I really didn't go home very much for four years. And the hard reality of that was all the friends that you have when you're 12, when you're 13, it's already hard enough to maintain those friends. To truly have lifelong friends is something that always impresses me when I see people who have friends. Oh yeah, we're 25 years old and we've been friends for 22 Mm -hmm. years. What? Mm -hmm. Because I think it was, I got left behind. And when you're 14 and when you think your shit can't stink and all the people that you knew just leave you behind, not because they should have waited. I was gone for four years, but I that's what happened. And so I think that that hurt, you know? And so, um, managing that I think was tougher than I anticipated it was going to be. But that's, I think also why I'm lucky because this didn't happen for everybody in my boarding school. I mean, when I look 
at my peers. A lot of them are now have have reverted back into many of the things in a more severe way than what led them to boarding school in the first place. But I think because of that loss, maybe outside of my family, that also kind of brought that familial piece. It made it important to me. Yeah, because you talk about after going to those schools, you managed to really return to your to your mm-hmm. mom and, and your your family. You graduated early, um, and then instead of going to college right away, you worked for your uh, grandfather's uh, law firm for a year, trying to figure out where where you'd go to school and what you wanted to actually do. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to gloss over all those years, but uh, quickly, I will tell you one thing about yeah. those years. I uh, worked at that law firm. And I saved and saved and saved and saved. And I bought the horse (laughs) that I had in Utah and brought him back because I didn't have any friends. I came back at 17. And so Dante. And so I called and I asked, would Dante be for sale? Possibly. I don't have that much to offer him. A few thousand bucks, which for horses is nothing. Um, And they said, yeah, sure. And so that's what I did for that year for social life is I made friends at the barn because I didn't have any other friends. I was hanging out with the 60-year-olds at the law firm. All right. Next time we're in the same place, we're going to go horseback riding. (laughs) I love horseback riding. Um, So I'm curious and and quickly, if you had been somewhere Mm. that you were allowed to check out, would mm-hmm. you have? Probably. Okay. So it wasn't like you got there and you thought this is good for me because you knew you needed to go somewhere, but it was tough once you got there. I I quickly became, yeah, I, I, I quickly looked for all of the ways in which I could secretly still keep doing a lot of the things that I had already been doing. Um, there were many eating stuff or was there, was there drug stuff? And yeah, the eat actually the eating stuff got more severe in college after I left boarding school completely, and I remember they told me, if you keep going like this, you know the doctors, if you keep going like this, you're going to have to go back. And I said, I've I've already missed four years of my life. You're not taking like co- this is the first normal educational thing that I've done since I was 14. You're not taking this from me. Um, I'd already been in the paper at that point you're not, you're not taking this from me. I'm, I'm, I, you say I can't fix myself. Watch me. Yeah. Um, you say this can't get better while I'm still in class. Watch me. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was anything I could do to have some sort of shock factor. Got it. Give it to me. Got it. And a lot of that, you know, you're in a place where there are people who have issues that don't mirror mine. Um, and so there was a part of me that said, Oh, huh. Let me try that out. Let me try that out. And that's yeah. disgusting. Like, that's not something that I, it's like something that's like, oh, yeah, I was so no, cool. But if you're no, it was acting out for the sake of acting out. Correct. Let me try and that's what I was looking ways for. To do that. So, yeah. oh, this version of self harm that I'd never heard of. Mm, I didn't know that that was, you know, oh, um, this person who really is just not the kindest human. I'm going to make sure I'm very close to them because that's that, that feeling, it was a comfort zone for me. And, um, that's something we had target skills that we had to work on every day. And they were, you know, when you get there, it's following instructions, it's disagreeing appropriately, um, you know, all these things. And mine were, well, I remember one of mine was emotional congruence, which as a target skill, it's like, how do you learn how, how do you check that off? How do you become emotionally congruent? But what they identified with me is that I'm, I was very good at, at putting something out and feeling and being something very different inside, mm-hmm. I think. 
That's fascinating. I think a lot of people would benefit from target skills. Yeah, I still need target skills. They're different now than they were 10 years ago. I should should make a couple of those. (laughs) So you ended up deciding after that year off working at the law firm to go to University of Portland. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that was written about you sounded very familiar. You went into communications to avoid math. Cool. (laughs) I got an English degree in part to avoid math. Um, I knew I wanted to do, I I was always into that anyway. But then when I saw that the art school had very limited math and science requirements, I'm like, that sounds good. Um, But I love that you decided to write for the, the school newspaper, The Beacon, and you just wanted to make friends there and some of the fun mm-hmm. people were in sports, but it wasn't a dream of yours. Did you have a dream when you got to school of any kind? Well, I mean, no, I, no, I, I, no, I, I mean, finding emotional congruence and then <laughs> finding emotional what you for work. <laughs> well, I, you know, it was never the thing that I think maybe separated me from some of the kids I went to boarding school with. And certainly look, the kind of treatment I went through, I am so lucky that I had a family that would take that on because many of the people who need it the most, they can't get it because financially it is excluded for them. And that is unfortunate because I think that, like you said, target skills versus run-ins with the cops is, it's a completely different life experience that can change you in a lasting way. Um, That's not to say that it did for everybody, but it can. And so my family, there was never really, even when I was going through that, an expectation that I wouldn't graduate from college. It was still something that was, well, we'll get there. But in my mind, like that was still a goal. I wanted to, I hadn't been in a regular class ever. My biggest class in high school was six kids. Um, so I was going from six kid classes to school and I was just like, let me blend in. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be the boarding school kid. Like, I don't need anybody to know. They don't need to know about all of this. And so I think that was my first goal, making friends, because again, I didn't come with this breadth of, of, of friends from all walks of life. And then I kind of bounced around. I thought, I knew I, I've always loved to write and I thought maybe PR, right, was going to be for me. And I, I quickly just got I the itching feeling. Wow. Look at us just avoiding the math and going Man, straight to the like, female-dominated PR. What else? <laughs> female-dominated PR. But I felt like, and this is this isn't all PR people, this isn't the case, but I just remember they're giving us cases which basically were moral dilemmas and saying, okay, how can you, what's the, what, what is the spin on this? And it left me feeling slimy and I didn't want to do it. I kept raising my hand and saying, but that's wrong, right? But that's not, that's not right, but that's not honest. And my friend at the time, my, my friend at the time, best friend and neighbor now, um, she worked for the school paper and I hadn't found something. And I thought maybe political speech writing is something I wanted to go into. Oh, I thought, you, you know, still do that. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I joined the beacon and the only opening they had was in sports. I said, you know, I, I can, I can, I can do this. I can yeah. try it. And I, I, when I say I loved it, I mean, mm-hmm. I loved it. I I got so lucky that uh, the advisor that we had over the paper, you know, she, Nancy Coppock, she was just like an incredible woman who 
was Superwoman to me at the time and still is. And I spent more hours in that in the beacon room than in class. Of course, my perfectionism still pushed me like, oh no, you need to graduate with honors to make sure you go to class enough, right? But but also become the editor of the beacon. But also become the, the perfectionism must go on. Um, it, yeah, that's that's great though to like find this space where you have friends, but also um, I'm not going to presume that your perfectionism manifesting itself into work is healthy. It is healthier. We'll is. we'll leave the jury out on the ways in which we are applying ourselves. Uh, professionally and making Constant sure evaluation yep, right because <laughs> um, a lot of people think if it's if it's work related it's okay and that's not that's not the case for many people in terms of how they how they act but so you you're that editor-in-chief I love the story about you know Woj coming to campus for something picking up a paper seeing your lead and your, <laughs> oh, that's quite good for a college writer and already <laughs> your name when you met him years later but um so you're at college and and what's remarkable if someone were to read everything we just talked about in the background, it sounds like a movie. It's like it all got tied up so perfect. Oh, no, well, now she's the editor of the paper and a, and a NABG J scholarship. And, you know, she's going to the Sports Journalism Institute and ends up at the New York Times right after school. I mean, it's all mm. remarkable. It would be remarkable even without anything coming before it that sidelined you. But um, how did you feel in those moments of very tangible success. That's not just I'm I'm smart and good and things are going to come. It's they're already here and of all the people that are up for scholarships or grants or anything else like I'm getting them. How did that feel? I was I was really proud. I mean, I I when I found out that I got the new the New York Times internship it wasn't the first thing I was proud of, but it's the first thing I remember just like physically like the, that pride, like washing over me. I was, I remember I was at the gym and I got the phone call and I didn't recognize the area code. And so I wasn't going to answer it. And then for some reason I did. And I was, I, I like, I couldn't even like finish my workout. I was so excited. And I called my dad and I, he, I don't, I don't think he picked up the first time. And then I told him and he was kind of quiet for a second. And I remember being like, are you not as excited as I am? Are you, and, and almost like my first instinct was to be like annoyed. Like, why don't you get how, and he just like, he, he needed a second. And then he just started laughing. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I mean, I, when I, and it's the same thing when I found out I was doing the draft, like, I called my dad and don't, I called my mom too. My mom's going to listen to this and say, well, what about me? Um, my mom was a big football fan growing up when I was growing up. My mom was the, the next call I made, but for some reason there's always been something with me with making my dad proud. And I think that's because my mother is so many wonderful things and lets me know all the time. And I've always thought of my dad as someone who's a little harder to please and someone I had to earn it with a little bit more. That's not to say he doesn't love me unconditionally, but it's, it's not the same way in your excitement. We've all been there people, right? It takes a little more to get it out of them. So it feels better when you get it. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the first time I felt that was with that. Um, but in hindsight, and I need to apply this now, even still, I don't think, I think it's that 
you know, that push pull of perfectionism that I think is what makes me um, continue to get better in this job. But it also makes it so that I think I'm I'm very quickly kind of onto the next thing and trying to figure out the next story and the next, um, at that time, it was the next thing that I was going to do because all of these achievements only lasted for, you know, a couple of months, if not just weeks, right? And so I think, you know, when I got named sports editor, I was always kind of like, okay, that's cool, but like I need to, and I think that that's something that is still things that there's a balance between being excited about getting to do something and looking towards the next thing. And I don't think I'm very good at that balance. I, I wish that I had my entire time at the New York times. I think I was wholly focused on trying to turn that into being there forever. I never wanted to leave the New York times. And so I think you're asking me about that. I haven't thought about that moment of getting that internship in years, but I've thought about being told I wasn't good enough to stay there. Right. I mean, you know, on a regular basis. Whenever, whenever, you know? you're feel, whenever you're feeling good about yourself, <laughs> exactly. it comes whenever I'm feeling good about myself. Yeah. Well, mm, it's interesting. It's interesting too because um, I think, especially when you're younger. And a, and a lot of people, those years that you were having that great success already, most of us were feeling emo about like, what are we doing with our lives? How are we going to change the world? What What is my great skill? Am I going to have a job? Am I going to make any money? Am I going to do anything that means anything? You skipped that part um, and you just were like successful, successful, successful. Now I need to do what's next. And so when you, whatever age you're at, I do think for some people, you get to a point where you ask yourself, is the next thing going to make me happier or is it just the thing that I think I should want? And then you make your decisions based on that. I've turned down a lot of things that would make me more money and more fame because I don't actually think I would be happier if I moved to New York and woke up at 3 a.m. every morning or if I <laughs> did what you know whatever. Um, yeah. But I also am aware that I'm putting caps on my ambition by prioritizing what I think makes me happy every day versus the idea of what happiness is, which is to be as successful and famous as possible. Everybody's different with that though. If you look at the most successful people who have made the biggest like changes and differences in whatever their industry or art is, they're usually not quite balanced. They're usually not someone who knows how to prioritize happiness or find it. They're usually people who struggle with that. And it pushes them to do things that nobody else can do. But they're not usually in an interview like, well, I just love a nice day at home hanging with you. Um, So you have to figure out which one you are and try to be as healthy as you can with it. Um, Our buddy, Nick Friedel, I used to sit sit him down all the time and say, Nick, you got to stop thinking about what's next and just focus on doing what you're doing now. Like a year ago, you would be so happy about what you're doing right now. And you're already so dissatisfied with it. You just got to what you're doing now. It's awesome. Be so proud of yourself and be happy about it before you're ready for the next thing. I do think in this industry, especially you're setting yourself up for failure. If it's always, what am I going to do next? Because every step is hard. You need Mm -hmm. to be so grateful and thankful of whatever you have because it's a tough business to be in. But I'm telling this to a 25-year-old that's already doing things that other people will never get to do. Let's get back to how great you are. So you're at the New York Times. Um, Quickly, because I do want to move on. But the the idea, who was telling you? I'm long-winded, Sarah. I'm sorry. When people give me that, because I never get the chance. I mean, have we met? Uh, (laughs) One of my target skills. Um, uh, When you're at the New York Times, who told you that you didn't belong there or couldn't stay there? Or is that a voice in your head? 
no, it's not a voice in my head. It was a very real conversation. My so my time at the New York Times, I, I won't I won't say that it changed the way the New York Times does internships, but my class changed the way that the New York Times does internships because several of us, you know, we we went for three month long internships, and after kind of the the process at that point was after three months, the class like they they tried to put out the expectation that it was over. And if it wasn't over after three months, then you were the, like, that was very, very special. And I I do think that's true because out of whatever, 20 of us interns, however many it was, 14, 20 in the newsroom, I think I remember four of us that stayed on longer than three months. I remember one very dear friend of mine did not stay on longer than three months and that conversation of, oh, I'm staying and, oh, have you heard anything? Right. And so after three months, then they extended you another three months and then, or me, they extended another three months, so that was six months. And then they extended me again after that. Um, so I ended up being at the New York Times just shy, just shy of a year. And at the year mark, they have to decide because as they have union rules right. after a year. They Child have to labor laws are silly and outdated. Laws, right? <laughs> they have to decide whether or not you're going to be converted into a full-time position or if you are going to not. And I remember my the editor of the sports section at the time um, told me that working at the New York Times is like being appointed a Supreme Court justice seat. It's a place for life and you're not ready. And... I was devastated. It wasn't the first time that I had failed at something, but it may have been the first time I've wanted something that badly and not gotten it. And I'm not sure at the time, I wasn't sure what I could have done better or differently because I think that what was wonderful and challenging about the times is that there was no kind of beat that was open or available to me. And that's what the times thought I needed, which was absolutely correct. By the way, I needed that structure of this is your piece of, of real estate in the world because the New York times covers every corner of the earth, right? I needed that to be narrowed a little bit. And they didn't have that to offer me at the time because especially the sports section was moving away from that. But that didn't stop me just because he was right. That didn't stop me from just internalizing it as a failure instead yeah. of a reality of, of that time exactly. and of your age, right? At, at that, what is that, 23? Not even. Okay. 22, 22. 21. I can't 22. believe I can't yeah. believe you didn't get 22. a full time job at the New York Times. <laughs> you are a failure. I'm Maybe I was barely twenty. I'm amazed that you're still at it. I can't <laughs> I believe you're still plugging well, along despite the very clear I signs thought, that you're no good. I thought this is the paper of record of the of the world. Yeah. Anything I do after this isn't as good well, or as, as a impressive. writer for sure. And, right. and and in that moment, that's going to feel that way too, if it's your only experience, really, you were at the Denver post briefly, but um, you're, you know, wherever you are, that, that feels like the most important place when you've been well, told that to when it is. I was going back to school after it right. was, I tried to do something yeah. and I didn't achieve it. Well, and also because you had this quick 
secession from the end of school to this, you didn't have the usual ennui that the rest of us have right after school, (laughs) which is holy shit, real life, which even if you're incredibly successful, everything else has been laid out for you. Do this well, and then this happens, and then you'll do this, and then this happens, and then you get to the end of school, and you're like, oh, no. There's right. no syllabus. There's no. no one pointing to me what to do or how to do it or where to do it. And and so that came a little later for you. And it was uh, following this opportunity that felt like, oh, this is the thing. So it I'm here. Thing. And now you're like, oh, I don't have the thing. So now the whole world is open to me. But also I'm, I'm going to feel like I'm stepping down from this thing, which is a totally different vibe than let me exactly. go work at, you know, as a secretary and make some money while I figure out what the hell I'm doing with my life, which is what a lot of people do. Um, Not to mention I was a sex in the city kid and I wanted to oh, know the New York, yeah. right? You were, yeah. like, <laughs> I you were, like, you were living those. This is the chew up and well, spit and out there talking about. get the job too because you started every column with, I couldn't help but wonder <laughs> if the Knicks were wonder. ever going to, and yes, it was like, exactly. okay, Carrie Bradshaw, like exactly. we need a new bit. Yeah. Um, okay. So then you end up at the Chicago Tribune for a year, um, which is when you and I met because uh, somebody suggested that you befriend good old Nick Friedel. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> that's right. It was McMenamin. And, um, and you, within the first week of being in Chicago, I think it was the first time I met you, you told us that the first week in Chicago, someone got shot and you were like wow. helping them. <laughs> Something that has never happened to me in right, life. And funny. somehow for you, like the immediate introduction to a city where there is a ton of gun violence, but a lot of spaces where you never see it. Yeah, somehow, yeah like you somehow immediately got. Uh, uh, t- tell me about that. <laughs> I'm, it's like really not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. Well, the um, absurdity and it's, unfortunate it's, yeah, nature of was, arriving and immediately having that be your welcome. So I moved into right, right. I moved into into West Loop in downtown Chicago. And it's, I mean, this is a, it's a, a big bustling city. I lived in, it, there was a bunch of, it was high rise buildings. It was, it was not, there is a, a lot of crime and also Chicago is known for, which I think are two separate things, a lot of crime, but this wasn't a high crime area. And I was leaving my apartment to go somewhere, I think to dinner, I think with Fridell actually. And there was my the 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 doorman at my building was outside and a man was like slumped over and his friend was um taking off his shirt and to, to tie it around this man who was shot he was shot in the butt and i i mean my first I went over to them and I said, has someone called 911? And I called 911. And then the man was trying to stand his friend up and say, it's okay. And I said, no, you need to don't stand up. All right, let's make sure these, these are, are on. These are tied. You need to stay here. I've called an ambulance. It doesn't, I, 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 I was panicking. I, right, of course. I was, you know, just, just stay like, it doesn't matter what you, what you did, or if you have insurance or just, 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 just stay here. It's, it's going to be okay. I think is what I said, even though I had no idea if I was going to be okay or not. Ambulance comes. And then I call the Chicago news desk and I say, hi, this is Malika. Um, 
I believe it was the span between Memorial and Labor Day where the Tribune does a project tracking every right. shooting in that stretch of time, Oops. where they do a project tracking the amount of shooting in that stretch of time. And so I called and I said, this is where, this is what I saw. Um, and I wrote up like 250 words and sent it over to them. And I Rydell was still at the restaurant. <laughs> and then I called ordered Rydell. some more sliders yeah, and waited. Exactly. I think he got two burgers for <laughs> yeah. us. Uh, it was the two for one night. That's was, why you guys yeah. were going there. He knew exactly. he, he knows where all of them are. Yeah. It was either that or crab Joe's Crab Shack. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um and then I called Fredell and said, Hey, um, I'm gonna be late. And at that point, like the the shake yeah. again. But I mean, like I'd heard about this in Chicago, but right. What? Well, and I've never, I've never been anywhere near it and seen it, which is wild that you arrived. So you're at the Tribune for a year. You're working the Bulls beat and and writing other stuff as well, but mostly focus on the Bulls, right? Yeah, yeah. For like um, from May, and then I by October I was at ESPN. So yeah, so very quick. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things about ESPN is that they will use you wherever they can and as often as they can, but you've already ascended to such a level that some of the places that want you are being denied. For instance, I think you have a one and no record on around the horn forever to go and on an infamy with a thousand percent batting just, average because they can't get you back in there because everybody else is like, we need her. You can't I don't, have I her. I just never want to be on the same around. I don't want to be on the same around the horn as you. Like I oh, don't, what it this, is? Like, oh, okay. this thing about setting myself up to fail, that's what I <laughs> I'm trying to avoid well, not You better not miss. I mean, it's a good, it's a good strategy by you. Um, no, but so you come to ESPN to work. Um, was it predominantly starting out the Midwest? So Bulls, Bucks kind of mm-hmm. vibe, Pistons, yep. maybe. Then you get sent over to do the Knicks. And then mm-hmm. yep. back to the Bucks because they become dominant. Um, and how long were you with ESPN doing a handful of different things before? Uh, the bubble that sort of uh, rose you to great prominence? About a year and a half. So it's my the, October of 2020 was my two year mark. Okay. So, yeah, because you were already yeah. sort of known. And I knew you, of course, from Friedel. So I was more aware of, of your presence at the company. But we would have you on the show and everyone would say, my God, she's so good. She's so great. And we would see you doing Sports Center. And it just was so smooth for you. When you got to ESPN, was there any fear in not just being a writer, but also being on camera and radio? Was that something you had ever dreamed of? Like, fear doesn't Especially at the times. It. it was like a, a cold sweat. I remember <laughs> my first Sports Center hit ever was at a Bucks game, and it's when Kawhi Leonard and Giannis Antetokounmpo both didn't play, which talk about taking the wind out of a Raptors-Bucks regular season matchup. Um, and it was a it probably wasn't even a 30 second hit because I was rushing through it so quickly. It was probably 20 seconds. And I lifted up my, I was wearing a gray (laughs) uh, suit jacket and I like had to check to make sure you couldn't see the sweat just like pouring off of me (laughs) because I was so nervous. And at that point, I wasn't doing a hit every day. The thing about the bubble or sort of when you got got to the playoffs and once you've kind of proven yourself is that you're on every day. And so if you mess up, don't get me wrong, I still beat myself up about it, even if it's a a sports center hit. You're right back at it, though. Right. But you're right back at it. At this point, it was like er, er, er. it was like driving a, a stick shift. Like it was. Had you done any any on camera stuff before, even in college, or? No, I mean, I I did a my first internship the summer of my sophomore year, I logged tape at a local uh, CBS affiliate in Portland. And 
I did some, you know, I would step in and I would read the anchors. Um, I, I'd read the teleprompter after they were done, if I could get someone to run the prompter for me, but I'd never done any, that was, that was it. You ESPN's know? a good place to start. Um, yeah, nobody, like, here, nobody sink, notices swim, if you make go. a mistake exactly. and there's no one watching. So yeah. if something yeah. goes wrong, you won't hear about no it one notices. forever. No. Um, so what, that's one of the things I loved is you end up in the bubble and you end up with all these new things you need to do that you haven't done before because it's a skeleton crew of people that are allowed in there. And it says the, the, the story said, she said she was nervous every time she took on something new, which is 100% how I think all of us are. I, so when I started in the industry, the thing that worried me the most was what am I wearing? Because that's what people would always comment on was like, what are you wearing? Does it look good on television? Is everyone going to tell you how you're fat and ugly and gross? And they hate your earrings, which is always like middle-aged white dudes hate my earrings. And I'm like, okay, thanks, Anna Wintour. But then after that, it was always, what are the logistics? Like, what kind of chair am I sitting in? Who do, who do I have a meeting with beforehand? Who, do I talk to producers? Do we know the questions? Do we know what we're talking about? What camera do I look at? Like, that scares me so much more than anything else. The content is fine. I got the content. It's like, every time you do something new, that's the scariest part of it. There's a point like one of my first sports centers in Bristol, they said, you're going to be at a desk. And I said, oh, good, because I wasn't planning on doing any sports centers. I came for something else. And they're like, oh, well, we'd really love to use you. You'll be fine. Then they switched it a second before and I'm standing in front of a screen and I have a mullet outfit on where I have a blazer on top, but like capri jeans on the bottom <laughs> and like sandals, flip flops on sport. And I'm like, you mother... <laughs> You said I was going to be at a desk and people were like tech, like tweeting me like bend your knees. You're going to pass out because I was standing so awkward. It was so uncomfortable that like, I would never put this outfit together. Why did you do this? Um, bend your knees. It was like the, yeah, they were like, you're going to pass out, bend your knees. Um, but like, that's the dumbest part is it's like the logistics and how does this work? And then you do it once. You're like, oh, I've done that. I'm okay. good now. But yeah. you had to keep doing that in the bubble. What was the toughest one of those where you're like, I haven't done this. And now all of a sudden it's like, do it. Sidelines was unlike anything I've ever done. There was nothing really to compare it to. Yeah. It's all asking questions and reporting, but it's, I don't know. And I told Cassidy Hubbard this, like, I don't know how you do this in front of like real people, not just, you know, the 50 fans that were actually family members that weren't there <laughs> until I'd already been doing sidelines for two weeks. Right. Um, because in the bubble, they'd actually, the DJ would turn the music down a little bit while we were doing the interviews. Like it was that everything was that close that I would walk by the DJ booth again and give them the thumbs up. Like you can turn it back up now. That doesn't happen outside yeah. of the bubble. So I think that was, I mean, I think because, and we have, I mean, our, there's a bunch of different departments at ESPN that are, are great. The game production crew is like next level of welcoming and great. And at the same time, sometimes I had to raise my hand and be like, I, I don't know. It was like I was back on doing Sports Center for the first time. I remember at one point I had to rap. They said to rap sound on Sports Center like two about two years ago. I had no idea what that <laughs> meant. I talked straight through the sound because mm -hmm. no one took yeah. the time to say, "Well, this is yeah. what rapping sound yeah. is. This is what." And so I had to do that often with the sidelines. I I didn't know what that. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that was. I didn't mm -hmm. know how. I was asking a lot of questions and didn't want to be. That's annoying. good though. That's good though. <laughs> um, that happened when I did Numbers Never Lie. Was the first studio show I ever did of any kind anywhere. And they were like, "Okay, so it's going to be on the jib here, and then go over to two, yeah. and then we're going to wrap this, and we're going to, and then lay out." And I'm like, 
what <laughs> layout that's a new, none of those words now i can't watch a game without when they put it in totally. shot. i'm like oh someone just said layout yep. someone's here yep. Oh, yep. i'm an insider yep. <laughs> um, so we're running out of time here so i have yeah, a bubble speed round Go. so you know speed. speed is the uh optimal word there uh what was your least favorite thing about the bubble food Okay. What was your most favorite thing about the bubble? The people. Okay. Favorite food in the bubble? This is going to sound strange, but the salmon or the vegetarian meatballs. Okay. All right. What, was it not enough choices and you got sick of it or was it just yeah. never good? It was, it was just not enough choices and I got sick of it. It wasn't like it was horrible food. It wasn't like, it was just not enough choices. I think I would probably like break quarantine just for like some Thai food. Well, it's like it's when you go to like, Italy. You shrimp one night and then there'd be shrimp on the salad the next day. And, and you're like, like, I know what you're doing here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, that's why you should always be very wary of the specials. What's yeah. special about them is that they mm. need to get rid of that stuff that they didn't know. <laughs> um, no, but it's like when you go to Italy and the food's amazing, but like, you're like, all I've eaten is things that taste like caprese, but in various yeah, forms. And exactly. I, you go home and you just immediately eat like Chinese food or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Um, your favorite way to spend any free time you might've had, if you had any. Working out or with Mama Melinda, our producer there. Producer. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, uh, who is your favorite hang? Is that who you like mostly hung out with? Yeah. I mean, there is no one... I loved I loved to rap on Woj's window and like peek my head through and be like, let's go do something. But I mean, Melinda, she was my ride or die every day. Every day I was there. I really so. want a buddy <laughs> flick of you and Woj in the bubble though. You're like, you're like, you're like teaching him like, you know, like the new songs and <laughs> yeah, I would, he would hook me up with a source. I would help him set up his iPad. Yeah, feed. there that you go. Kind of I love it. Um, well, who's the player you got to know best in the bubble? Mm, Jimmy Butler. Oh, I love Jimmy. Yeah. He's fun. I got to cover the East all the way through and yeah. I hadn't gotten to spend much time in Miami before. And Jimmy. How was uh, the coffee? Was it just priced because of availability or did he actually was, know how to brew a cup of coffee? He knew how to brew a cup of coffee. Okay. I will say the only big and little face coffee I drank was cold. So I okay. don't think I Not got the, the same because they brought it down to me and like it was after practice. And so, but it was good. Uh, the player that you couldn't get to open up in the bubble. Hmm. The player that I couldn't get to open up in the bubble. I don't know. I'll make it back to you on that one. There wasn't anyone that like, because I remember being, I didn't do beat reporting for very long, but I remember that I would be in the locker room and be like, this guy never gives me anything good. Like, he hates me. I don't know why he won't talk to me. Maybe it was just because we didn't get to spend all that much. Like right. I was, it was like, a, I'm targeting beeline to the, you know, we're, we're, right. we're going to get this done. We're going to, we're going to do this. <laughs> what did it feel like when the story that you wrote about Giannis caused him to walk out of the press conference when you asked him a question? horrifying did you feel certain of your sources and what you wrote and yet yes. it still was painful for him to do that correct that is exactly right i think that it would have been it was embarrassing maybe is the way that horrifying i meant like i was horrified i was embarrassed i think that if i wasn't sure of myself then it would have been an added layer of nausea and worry i wasn't worried 
I was embarrassed because it was on national television. And um, look, hard truths are a part of what I do. I don't think I've done my job if I haven't. Ramona Shelburne has a wonderful saying. Um, if, you, if you haven't told a hard story in this past year, what are you doing? So I was doing that, um, but that didn't make it. It never happened to me before. So, Well, it was clear his teammate didn't know why he walked out. Did it feel like the people in the room at that moment knew why he walked out? Or was that a you and Giannis thing? And then you knew that you were waiting for the inevitable of people trying to figure out why he walked out. You know, I'm still not totally, you know, Giannis and I have talked about it a little bit. I'll leave that kind of between us. But um, we have a, a good relationship now. I have a story coming out about him in the next couple of weeks that I'm excited about. But I... I don't think people in the room knew. I think Giannis was also, I mean, he just lost. And there's there's only one thing more important to Giannis than winning at basketball, and it's his family, mm-hmm. and that's it. And so I, but I also, in a weird way, am, I'm not glad it happened, but I went into that press conference knowing that I was going to ask a question because I didn't, there's so many people who write so many things about these guys and don't face them ever. Mm. And I was set on. I believe they call that the Jay Mariotti. (laughs) That's you're too young for that. But Google it sometime. He would get his colleagues beat up. Right. I just want to say I'm here. And however you want to react, this is your prerogative to do so. Right. I'm here. Right. I'm not going to run away. Um, The draft. What are you most excited and or nervous about? Um, I have called LaMelo Lonzo too many times in practice, so (laughs) not going to do that. Um, I am most excited about – I mean, I mean, I mean – Jay Billis and Reese Davis and Woj and uh, Bobby Marks and Mike Schmidt. I mean, I and Jay Williams. I can't be the weak link there. <laughs> like that's what I'm most nervous about. I am. I can't be the one to screw this up. So that's but the fun of it is, presumably, about. unless someone free falls. Right. You're, you're talking to people at one of the happiest moments of their life, and your yeah. job is to amplify their happiness and to know just enough about them to bring out something that makes other people excited for them. And that's such a fun job. Well, and what was awesome about being on the sidelines in the bubble that I didn't really realize maybe so much before I did it was that I became a part of these games in a way that you just don't if you're not on the broadcast. I am in the moment when Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell are duking it out and Donovan has 50-something and Jamal has the high 40s. And I'm the person that they then are associating the end of that joy with, obviously. Yeah. You know, well, yeah, when we want the, be the last dance. Person, yeah, I yeah. want to be the, the the person. I get I get the privilege of being the person that gets to – in a very small way, share this thing with them. And if I can be in any way, shape, or form uh, a part of that, then that's their association with me. And that jumpstarts our relationship for these guys that are going to be in the But also for, for the people really watching. For the right. people watching, you're associated with it. And so, you know, 20 years from now, they show clips from it. And that's you. That's a part of it, which is really cool. I felt that way about covering the Cubs World Series was I got to be a fan and go to the games. But right. I also was in a crowded bar of hundreds of people 
screaming over them back to the sports center desk. And those are the visuals of what that moment was like in the city. Exactly. A little time capsule. So I, it happened. Yeah. I better wear some earrings. It really wear some earrings white that anger men, yeah. middle-aged white men. I recommend yeah. big, I recommend sparkles, tassels. Oh, got um, it. Yeah. Sparkly tassels that are large. Got it. Um, it. Yeah. Just whatever you can do to piss them off is a great way to engender yourself to everybody. One of us. One of us. <laughs> what are you doing to ruin sports for men this week? Um, so this was amazing, but there was so much more we didn't get to, including the Spanish Inquisition, and everyone's going to be mad. <laughs> but the Spanish Inquisition is going to have to come in part two. So that means everyone will have to listen to Malika Andrews part two, and she will have to come back for a second one because there was so much more to get to. Malika, this was awesome. Thanks for being so honest and great. And also for um, making all of us feel bad about ourselves as you <laughs> chase us down and pass us by years before. I'm- it was my pleasure, but only on the first one. <laughs> That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, it's guys who hear about a woman hired for a traditionally male job who say some version of, I just hope she's getting hired because she's qualified, not just because she's a woman. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this, especially when the woman in question is overqualified, as is the case for New Marlins GM Kim Eng, the first female GM of any North American professional men's team ever. She's been in the business 30 years. She interviewed for five GM positions before this one. She was the youngest assistant GM ever when she was hired for that gig 22 years ago. It's time, fellas. But listen, I've heard people complaining when a woman was named the Bills quality control coach and nobody, I mean nobody, knows what the f*** a quality control coach does. So don't even start with the is she qualified shit. That job could involve bathing elephants and you wouldn't know. So why don't you sit down, Chad, and shut up. And I know your name's Chad. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Don't be that guy. Also, from here on out, I'm taking a page from the Twitter phenom at Megan Amram, who has tweeted, today was the day Donald Trump finally became president every day since May 15th of 2017. I'm going to do that every single time any guy gets a job in sports. No matter who he is, I'm going to tweet out, I really just hope he got the job because he's qualified and not because he's a guy. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 